this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today I'd like to welcome Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor, a songwriting duo from Liverpool, England, but you may know them as the hosts of the Soda Jerker podcast. Their podcast features interviews with some of the world's most successful songwriters, including David Crosby, Jeff Lynne, Paul Simon, and even Paul McCartney. Simon and Brian interviewed Paul a few years ago during the release of Paul's album, Egypt Station. They're as big of Beatles fans as anyone, and I'm excited to have them on. Thank you guys so much for coming on the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. This is the first time I have two guests on, so welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. So let's get started. How did you guys first hear the Beatles? Uh, shall I start, Simon? Yeah, go on. <laughs> um, I think about this quite a lot, and it's hard to pinpoint it exactly. Um, obviously, growing up in Liverpool, you, you're sort of conscious of them from quite early on. Um, I think I was conscious of the Beatles more as solo artists or or just these these guys who used to pop up on tv every now and again on chat shows and things we had a, a chat show called aspel and company that was on over here and and george and ringo would would pop up on that and paul from time to time and um i think the first music i, I can remember from any of them was was probably the frog chorus to be honest um because i was about five or six at the time so i was the uh, i was the target market um, so I was conscious of, very conscious of Paul in terms of, of his, of, of his music, I guess, from an early age, um, or a certain facet of his music. And then, uh, later on, just as, as I got a bit older, nine or 10, um, I started to, I got my first Walkman started pilfering my dad's cassette, uh, collection and, um, listening to his Beatles cassettes in particular, um, particularly the, uh, later period. So. I guess Sergeant Pepper onwards, um, and particularly Abbey Road. I remember being particularly keen on that, and uh, and I would gravitate a lot towards um, towards Paul's songs in particular, because I guess he, you know, he had the the more jaunty, child friendly songs uh, of of the bunch. Well, if you don't include Ringo, um, so yeah, so that that's so it's sort of a scattered thing. I was aware of them as people and and then became aware of them as a band later on and and probably in me in my mid teens when I started to get into music properly and join a band and all that sort of stuff. I really went deep um into the catalogue and, and really sort of fell in love with them in a whole new way. Mm. Simon? I think mine's probably a little bit more vague than that, I guess. I mean I know that my mum and dad had the records and they had, I remember Rubber Soul in particular because of that striking cover. And we used to like to engage, me and my sisters used to like to engage with records because there was a record player in the back room and we used to go in there and sort of put records on and particularly put them on the wrong speed. I don't know why, a bit um, satanic, but we used to <laughs> we used to listen to 45s of the Beatles, I know that, um, and we had those records and... We definitely played them quite a bit, and I guess we used to like sing into hairbrushes and put on little shows for our parents and things like that. Probably, um, so I, I, I know I knew the music from that, but I had no real concept of who they were 
or what kind of impact they'd had or anything like that. And then I guess as we got older and started making music ourselves and things, they were always just in the air in Liverpool. You know, it's like this constant sort of cloud or presence. <laughs> um, so I had a sense of them from that, but probably it wasn't totally consolidated for me until the anthology. Uh, do you know, when when that was on TV, that was probably the point that I realised that these people had made this colossal contribution to popular music, you know, um, and that they were worth exploring. And, and I think probably at that point I went back and actually started listening properly to all those records. I mean, everybody knows the big, they're just inescapable, aren't they? The the, the biggest songs from Sgt. Pepper or whatever. But, you know, I'd certainly probably at that point never listened to Beatles for Sale or, or you know, deeper cuts on the White Album or things like that. And that was the point, I think, where I went back and sort of mined the rest of their catalogue. Yeah, it was the same for me. The anthology was was huge, really, um, because we were like 15, 16 when that was on TV. So exactly the right age um, and, you know, in a band together and writing songs. And so we just kind of ate that up. And and around the same time, um, the, the Ian MacDonald book, Revolution in the Head, um, I'm not sure when that came out. Was it 94 or something, maybe? Um, but I remember getting that around the same time as well. So the combination of, of Revolution in the Head, of Devour and that book, and Mark Lewison's um, Recording Sessions book, um, and the anthology and all the free as a bird, real love, hullabaloo that was going on. Um, I mean, they were sort of particularly inescapable at that point, but we were just, um, we were so open to to learning about them by then. Um, and same as I, actually, I, I probably didn't discover certain, well, I know I didn't discover certain albums till, till later on. Revolver, I didn't really listen to until that point, around sort of 16, 17 and I think it came to like Hard Day's Night and and Beatles for Sale even even later. Like I knew the the obvious songs from those records, but yeah, as I said, the deep cuts were were new to me. Being from Liverpool, was there a stigma around liking the Beatles' music? Like, was it considered cliche? When when I kind of said that it hung over us, I think that that the spectre of the Beatles was something that hung over a lot of musicians our age when we were growing up, and maybe for the generation before, I'm not sure. But it it always felt to me like when we were in bands in Liverpool, it was perhaps not cool to be reproducing a kind of Beatles-esque, jangly, Mersey-beat kind of sound, you know, even though there were always bands like that. Um, I always felt that that would be seen as kind of like a bit passe, you know. Um, I don't know. Did you feel that, Brian? Um, I mean, and certainly not now. I think, again, growing up in the 80s, um, there was definitely a sense of this attitude um, that, uh, I don't know, there was there was maybe a little bit of a backlash against the, the Beatles at, around that time. I think particularly in the 70s or so, I hear, um, there was a bit of a, maybe not an outright rejection of them, but people definitely were keen to escape from under that shadow. So, you know, a lot of the Liverpool bands of the 70s were, were I think almost went out the way not to um, to sort of cite the Beatles as a reference. And then when I was, you know, I was born in 79, and then as I became aware of the Beatles, you, you did sense that some people were maybe a bit resentful of them, but I don't think it was so much the the music or anything like that. I think it was just... The, the the prominence and also there was this prevailing attitude in Liverpool at the time that any anyone from the city who uh, who you know made good 
made a few quid, uh, you know, moved out of the city and um, had sort of turned their back somehow on on Liverpool, which is I I thought it was nonsense as a, as a kid to be honest, and I still think it's nonsense now. But um, and I think some of that bled into how people perceived the Beatles that they'd sort of oh they you know as soon as they uh, made it big they left us behind forgot about us you know. I don't think that's um, changed that much, though. I think I remember when Ringo was on a TV show some years ago. Was it like oh, jo- yeah. was it Jonathan Ross Jonathan or something? Ross. Yeah. And and he said like, "Do you ever think about Liverpool?" And Ringo went, "No." <laughs> and I, re- I remember was. there was there was outrage, wasn't there? There was people writing into the local paper saying, "All we needed was some support from Ringo." Yeah, <laughs> you know? well, there was there was also a topiary, a, a Beatles, uh, a, a topiary outside a, a train station in Liverpool, and someone someone chainsawed Ringo's head off. Um, <laughs> no way. This 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 uh, this hedge, yeah. Um, but Jen, I see. I thought he was just being honest. I think Jonathan Ross asked them. Well, at the time they had the Liverpool Eight album out, so he was sort of, you know, he was branding this album as "Oh, I'm from Liverpool." And uh, and then Jonathan Ross asked them on this chat show at the time, you know, "Do you miss the city? Do you miss living in it?" And he just went, "No." And it was just really, but though that was a very Scouse thing to say because Scouse being obviously a slang term for Liverpoolians, um. You know, he was being honest. He was asked a question. He gave an honest answer. And the Beatles, one of the great things about the Beatles is, is they were always straight down the line and honest and, and spoke the mind, you know. And he wasn't going to sort of soft soap anyone or, or say, oh, yeah, of course. Oh, you know, wish it was back there living in Toxteth. I mean, the guy lives in L.A., you know, <laughs> um, or and has lived in Monaco and things. a place like this. He's not exactly going to be yearning for uh, Liverpool 8 necessarily. Um <laughs> So, so yeah, you know, I thought that was actually quite, that that was a very Liverpool thing. He was just like, he was just honest, but some people took it the wrong way. So yeah, there, I guess there is um, some sensitivity amongst some Liverpool folk, um, but I think that they're sort of a dying breed, to be honest. Yeah, it's a very proud city though, isn't it, in that sense? Mm. Yeah. So how did you two meet and how did you decide to begin a songwriting partnership that would eventually evolve into your Soda Jerker podcast? Well, um, we met at school when we were sort of 13, 14, Brian. Brian's great with dates. Yes, well, we met when we were uh, we were like 11. Um, but we didn't become friends probably till a couple of years into high school. Yeah, so we were in the same class from the start of high school, but we didn't really sort of enter each other's orbits for, for maybe a couple of years properly, you know, as friends. Yeah, and I was uh, in yeah. a band, wasn't I, at the time with some of our classmates, little mm-hmm. beat combo called Blue Rinse. And um, it was uh, just us sort of getting together and, you know, trying to write songs and rehearse and things like that. And Brian joined that band to and took up the bass, learned to play the bass in order to join that band. And so from there, we just, as that band sort of split down the middle, me and Brian sort of went our own separate way and started writing songs together ourselves. And, you know, we had a good music teacher at school and he was interested in songs we were writing and we bought a four-track machine from him and started recording in my back room and just devoted loads of time to it. I think that was always the most fun part of the process for us, wasn't it, Brian? Because we did do a lot of gigs over the years and you know, as you probably know, gigging is like 90% sitting in a van and waiting for sound check and stuff like that and 10% fun on stage. And um, so for us, writing and recording was sort of 100% fun. So we just stuck with that, really. Yeah, and then we were in a band for um, together for 
I guess another 12 years, something like that. And then um, once that one sort of dissolved, we still wanted to continue writing songs together. So, um, so the Jaker emerged from the ashes of, of another band we were in called Santa Carla. And uh, yeah, and, and so that was, so, so the Jaker in its initial incarnation was a vehicle for us as, as songwriters um, for, hi- <clears throat> for hire, I guess. And then um, I guess two years into that, we were maybe wondering how we could drive traffic to the website and, you know, get people interested in us. And, and Sai suggested, well, what about a podcast? And we figured, well, what will it be about? Well, songwriting. And and eventually we landed at the idea of, well, long form interviews with songwriters. There, there were some podcasts about songwriting here, but they, they weren't interviews with successful songwriters um, in the vein of, you know, in the format of, of, of like Mark Maron's podcast or near just or any of the ones that were around at the time. So we just thought we'll, we'll nip in and, and uh, maybe corner that market for a while. And so, yeah, so that's what we did. You both have interviewed some of the world's most famous songwriters, such as David Crosby, Jeff Lynne, especially Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. What are the most interesting parts of your conversations with these people? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting to sit down with any renowned person like that in any field really um you know you're gonna have an interesting time no matter what but obviously we're suckers for insights into the creative process so you know aside from great stories or funny things that people say if if someone can give us something about the nuts and bolts of, of how they make things you know or or how they conceptualize what they do then that's like we're in heaven then especially if they've got some smart way of describing you know, creativity and, and how they produce something out of nothing. That's really what we're after, I think. So let's talk about your interview with Paul McCartney, which is just incredible. Sure. Um, what was going through your heads while you were speaking with Paul? Um, oh, my don't God. Don't screw this up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And oh, my that's, God. That's yeah. Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's funny, um, you know, obviously we were ahead of, of the interview we, we were you know we were nervous um but personally speaking i'm nervous before every interview because i just want it to go well you know i don't want to screw it up i don't want to make a fool of myself um and we want to end up with a good episode at the end of it so um so i mean you know the nerves were probably a little you know um higher than 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 usual um but it was funny once once we got in the room because on the day um it was done at, at, at Lippe, the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, which is um, of which Paul is the lead patron in a, a performing arts school in Liverpool, um, and he was there that day to um, to do a Q and A live Q and A with Jarvis Cocker from from Pulp, and then he did a, a performance, like an unplugged performance there, which we got to see as well, and um, and so we were there from like sort of midday. And and probably by the time we got in the room, it was like five thirty. So by that point, any nerves had really just ebbed away, and and we were really keen. I, you know, I personally, I was just really keen to get in that room and just just get going. So um, so yeah. So once we got in there, it was you know, and he's as anyone who's interviewed Paul will will tell you, he's he's extremely good at putting people at the ease. He knows people are coming in nervous and. You know, he's 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 a very sort of uh, welcoming and warm person, and um, 
and we just set up and sat down and and uh, I guess sort of professionalism took over and uh, and we just got down to asking the questions and 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 trying to listen and take in what he was saying without thinking oh shit it's Paul McCartney um and not just stare at him you know <laughs> and uh, and yeah and we we managed it I mean I guess if we were doing that a year into starting the podcast it might have been a different story we might have gone to pieces but you know we'd had about seven years experience at that point so it was it was a good time to do it because we you know we felt a lot more capable I think at that point Simon don't know if you have any uh, memories I remember you stealing his bag <laughs> oh yeah I accidentally almost walked out with his um he had a sort of you know over the shoulder satchel thing no. which looked exactly like the one Sai had with him and as we, <laughs> as we went to leave, I just picked it up, threw it over my shoulder, and then realized, oh shit, it's Paul's bag. Let's put that down because he had like a seven foot tall bodyguard there who probably a rugby tackled me to the ground <laughs> before I even got out the door. Um, but yeah, but uh, yeah, it was just it was a lovely experience, wasn't it? So yeah, just um, such a nice guy. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, and he was he was really engaged, like he was interested. You know, like there's no reason for him to want to know where we got the name Soda Jerker from or what it means. But he, you know, while we were standing around and packing up and stuff, he asked about that and I could see in his eyes that he was connected with my answer, you know, like he was engaged by it. And then yeah. he said, well, it's catchy. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was all the approbation we needed. <laughs> <laughs> so where does the name come from? Oh, the name comes um, from, uh, well... It's it's uh, you've probably heard of a soda jerk or a soda jerker. It, it's like fi- a fifties Americana era term for um, the guys who work the soda fountain, basically in 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 diners and and places like that. Um, and uh, I just saw it in an article I was reading, and I just liked the shape of the word, and I just thought, oh, that's, um, and it goes nicely. It alliterates with, with songwriting and. And then Sai looked a little bit more into the the etymology of it, and um, and then just discovered uh, that it, it it sort of um, the the work that the or, or the the persona of the soda jerk was kind of um, akin to to a songwriter in that he would he'd come up with uh, creative names for what he was serving up. So I I guess not just the soda jerk, but also the people working the the short or the cooks and things like that in in a diner. Um, if, if someone ordered a particular item off the menu, they had their own um, slang, very creative slang terms. Um, and and side, was, what, what's a good example? Well, they, they'd call like butter axle grease or they'd call soup belly wash or or, or, yeah. or it'd be linked to some kind of action. Like if someone wanted a black coffee, they'd say draw one in the dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or they'd say dress one pig for a ham sandwich. You know, yeah, or, or, or scrambled or, egg on toast was what Adam and Eve on a raft and wreck them. Yeah, you know, or, or, or like, which is an unbelievably creative, and and we just thought, well, that's uh, that's what a songwriter does, really. He he takes the mundane and he elevates it to something interesting and exciting. Oh, I like that. I never knew the story behind your name. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> was there anything that stood out about Paul McCartney's creative process? Or anything that was different than the processes of other artists that you've interviewed? Uh, I wouldn't say he was any different, particularly than anyone else. Um, mm. He was he was totally engaged with 
writing songs and trying to write the best songs that he could, which I thought at his age is really interesting. You know, he hadn't lost any of that enthusiasm for the process or any of that um, passion for the mystery of songwriting, you know, where you, you sit at the piano late at night and you noodle around and something comes and you think, oh, you know, that could be something special and maybe you'll develop it to a point where you'll remember it and then you'll come back the next night. And he was still doing that, you know, actively doing that and producing songs that way, which we thought was nice. And, of course, he had loads of stuff on his phone, one of which he played us, which ended up on um, the next record. But Oh, well, McCartney 3 ended up on, yeah, yeah, The Kiss of Venus it was. That was another crazy moment, actually. Yeah, so he um, was he was actively capturing his ideas on his phone and he was willing to play one to us. So in that sense, that, that left out, because not everybody does that, you know. She's got a bullseye in the Yeah, one extraordinary thing about that as well is that that particular song, as well as ending up on um, McCartney 3, um, the lyric was included in his lyric book that he brought out towards the end of last year. So it's kind of crazy that this song that's wound up in this two-volume set of his lyrics, this, I guess, what will be a definitive uh, collection of his lyrics, we were among the first people to to hear like a snippet of that song, <laughs> which it blows my mind anyway. Yeah, yeah, that must have been crazy. Incredible. I mean, you came a long way from just watching an anthology on the TV. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, you you know, because that's happened a lot with the podcast. You know, people we were fans of uh, as teenagers and would talk about the music and, and jam their songs and things. People like Sting or people like Nile Rodgers or, you know, we've wound up face to face with a, a lot of these people. And you can't help but think back to yourself as a, you know, snot-nosed kid. <laughs> um and like would they would you you know if you could go back and tell your younger self what you'll you'll go on to to do um yeah it's mind blowing really are there any questions that you didn't get to ask paul or are there any questions that you'd love to ask gringo if you had him on oh um i mean like i said about paul's sort of ongoing enthusiasm i'd like to talk a bit more about that and find out a little bit more about what makes him tick, because there's really no reason for him to be doing any of this at this point, you know. And the fact that he's still flying around the world doing shows at 80 years old, it's just, you know, insane. The man has just Duracell bunny energy, doesn't he? It's crazy. <laughs> so I'd love to know a little bit more about what motivates him, I suppose. But I haven't really thought about what I'd ask Ringo. <laughs> no, me, me neither. I mean, we have looked into getting Ringo on at, at certain points because um, we sort of know his, his UK publicist, but it's, it's just the opportunity's never um, never arisen, really. But uh, no, I, I don't know what I'd ask him, but I think there's definitely stuff in Ringo's you know solo catalogue um, that I'd love to ask about, especially the early um, records. Like I'm a, I'm a big fan of the 1973 Ringo album and Goodnight Vienna. Stuff oh, like yeah. that, you know, which have some great, totally. great tunes on them, and just his experiences, I guess, because he has become quite—I don't know if prolific is the word—but he's he's written a lot over the over the decades with with a variety of of different people. Um, so I guess you know how he likes to collaborate. Questions like that, maybe. But no, I've not really thought about it in, in too much depth. I think I'd ask him if he misses Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a chance to, uh, to rectify his mistake. <laughs> As songwriters yourselves, are Lennon and McCartney the best songwriters in popular music? 
tough one, that, mm. I think. It is, I mean, it's hard to say whether they're the, the best, uh, I mean, most important, arguably, in terms of the the sheer, you know, influence they've had on generations of, of songwriters. It, it'd be hard to find another songwriter or pair of songwriters who could could stake the claim to have had that level of of influence on people. And so in terms of how many people they've inspired and stuff, you know, maybe they're the most important or influential. Um, but best, that's that's hard because there's a lot of, you know... A lot of great, lot of great there, songwriters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, as a unit, they sort of complemented each other in this almost supernatural way, didn't they? You know, they're from the mm. same area. They happen to be from the same area. They happen to find each other. They happen to work together consistently enough that, you know, they obviously liked each other. I mean, it's all kind of miraculous in some way, isn't it, that it ever happened? Um, yeah. and, and the catalogue takes some beating, doesn't it, in terms of the depth and the breadth of it in that mm. short time? Yeah, and the fact that it was achieved in yeah in such a short time, I was just going to say that, you know, compressed within, you know, I guess the Beatles recording career lasted, what, about eight years? Not even that, really, because they, they were pretty much split up by 1970. John had, had buggered off, hadn't he? Um, <laughs> but, you know, so six, six, yeah, maybe seven years, I guess, in earnest. And um, But there's a yeah, lot of great catalogues out there, isn't there? Certainly by songwriting teams, you know, well, yeah, you know Goffin and Kings. Back, and- Backrack and David, and um, then you've got sort of solo Writers like Paul Simon and people like that who've pretty formidable catalogues. The Bee Gees catalogue, so, it perhaps equals that in some ways as well, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, you obviously, like, we're huge fans with, you know, they're massively important to us as they are to millions of people. But I try and look at it as objectively as possible when it's when I'm thinking in terms of, of best. You know, I'm not sure if there is an outright best um, they're up there, obviously, top table. Um, <laughs> but it's a very long banquet table with lots of people um, <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> yeah, and, and you go to different people for different things, don't you? You know, like McCartney's melodies are kind of unsurpassable for me, but then perhaps I would go to someone like Paul Simon for the lyrics, you know? So, yeah. Mm, yeah, it really depends. I mean, I would love to hear Paul's melodies paired with like some lyrics that are a bit more meaningful, you know? Like no offense to Paul, but oh yeah, I I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> yeah, when he when he puts his mind to it, um, I think he's a great lyricist and an underrated, um, lyricist. But there are quite a few examples where you can tell he's just sort of gone with the first thing that popped into his head. It, it's almost like, you know, we, we talk to a lot of songwriters who uh, talk about like the gibberish lyric or the nonsense lyric that they just use to to map out the. The song kind of thing and um i think a lot of paul's lyrics sound like he, he, he just got too attached <laughs> to that to that early nonsense lyric and he just stuck with it he just thought fuck i'm paul mccartney um <laughs> and some of them work you know god love him it's some of them do work and you grow to sort of love those songs um you know there's a lot of a lot of his songs i love which have not particularly great lyrics and you know don't stand up to much scrutiny but the, the whole package is just very appealing because he's so musically strong. Um, he, he can turn a bit of a duff lyric into something mm. um, halfway decent, you know. But there are great lyrics in there, I think. Lot, mm. Plenty of them. 
side and what you think. Yeah, well, there's a, a, a double bound kind of lyric book now, isn't there? We can go through and pick out the best <laughs> ones. <laughs> yeah. But there's great, you know, and he, he could be, you know, I, I think he's been described as maybe a bit facile and a bit shallow compared to, to say, John's lyrics. You know, But, you know, if you look at some of Paul's lyrics from from his Beatles era, they're, they're easily as, I think, as as honest and candid and, and revealing as as John's are. It's just Paul maybe doesn't like to um, look in, read into, or it doesn't like people to maybe read too much into his his lyrics, whereas John was quite happy to lay it, lay it all out there, expose himself, you know, mm. and it, well, quite literally. Um, <laughs> but, but Paul is perhaps more guarded in the way that he represents things in his lyrics, I think. Yes, he he would he would claim, oh, you know, don't read too much in because I'm ultimately I'm just you know um, not necessarily writing about myself. But I think you could point to quite a few lyrics where he, chances are he is writing about himself, and he's good at it when when he does. If you if you look at the Chaos and Creation album, hmm. you know, which I think many would cite as uh, his most uh, candid lyrically, his most um, I guess uh, direct. Um, you know, he's 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 been quite, you know, because I think that album was written around the time of his, his divorce and things like that. So, and it comes through, you know, when he, when he wants to, he can be a, a very um, uh, sort of meaningful lyricist. Now, do you guys have a favorite memory associated with the Beatles? Would it be your interview with Paul? I mean, that's, that's yeah. got to be, it, it's that's got to be it. We have had a lot of lovely Beatles sort of experiences over the years. You know, when we well, were at Lippo, uh, yeah. we saw People George Martin there, didn't we? And we saw Paul a few times there. Um, we've seen Paul in concerts, which has always been incredible. Um, we visited Abbey Road for the first time. We went to Studio 2, and that was really uh, incredible. But yeah. nothing we saw compares... saw Paul like, play there as well, didn't we? Yeah, nothing compares to... Um, the experiences we had that week, I think, because during that week that we interviewed Paul, we ended up at seeing a, con- a small concert that he did at Abbey Road for a very like privileged, invited audience. Was there like ninety yeah. people there? Yeah, we we were there that day for a uh, just it was just by chance really. We we were scheduled to interview Nile Rogers at Abbey Road um, on lunchtime that day, and. Um, and like we literally wrapped that interview, and then they said, "Right, okay, uh, just down the corridor, Paul's playing a concert." Well, he didn't say what exactly what was going on, but they you know, just sort of strapped some wristbands on us, didn't they, and said, yeah. "Come this way." <laughs> yeah, we knew Paul was there that day. We didn't really know what he was doing. We knew there was some kind of event going on in in Studio Two, but we weren't sure what it was, and we we certainly didn't think we'd be privy to it. But, but yeah, we literally wrapped the interview with Niall. He gave us wristbands and said, okay, it's, um, if you want to get yourself to Studio 2 down the corridor. And um, we walked in and, knows his... we walked in and Sorry, there was uh, Orlando Bloom and Johnny Depp and Amy Schumer and Stormzy and Kylie Minogue. And we thought, something's going on. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was and, mad, uh, and, really weird. Yeah, and there was a stage set up and then it turned out it was a, it was a, a like 90-minute concert full band um Giles Martin was up in the uh, the control room recording it for, for Spotify and it was being filmed and um and we just found ourselves there just by chance because we were booked to do this interview on that particular day we happened to be there and they arranged for us to to go and watch it um so that was something special you know Paul at one point got 
off stage and um, played Lady Madonna on the uh, the Mrs. Mills piano, which is obviously on so many Beatles records. Um, so we so were basically we were just, just standing around that piano watching him play it. Yeah, he was just on the on the floor of the studio with all of us, and you know, back to us. So we're all stood around the piano, and he's blasting out Lady Madonna. Um, so you know, that's um, we could we could have died happy. At that moment, pretty much. <laughs> we, I think we both knew this is probably never getting any better than this. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of experience, you know, we, we've had we've gone on to have other lovely experiences doing the podcast, but I think we 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 both knew that was the zenith. You know, <laughs> how could how could it possibly get better than this? And then a couple um, of so days was, later, we were face to face with him, weren't we, doing the interview? Yeah, I mean, we 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 got to see him. Obviously, we saw him play that on that Monday, and then on the Wednesday we interviewed him. And then, but earlier on the Wednesday, as as I mentioned before, he did a, an unplugged performance in the little auditorium they have at at, um, at Lippa. Um, and it was the first time he'd ever, you know, the school's been around since ninety six, I think ninety five, ninety six. But it was the first time he'd ever performed there. So, so we did this Q and A with Jarvis, and then. Um, he went off stage and then he brought the curtain up and there's like a little, you know, acoustic guitars and a little drum kit set up. And uh, everyone was like, wow, because it was a total surprise to the to the audience. But we'd actually seen him sound checking earlier in the day. We've been led through the through that particular auditorium as he was sound checking with um Confidant, was it, from Egypt Station, I think. Yeah. So we knew that was coming, but we the audience didn't for the so so there was this whoop of delight when the uh, the curtain came up and they saw the guitars. So we got to see basically two free McCartney gigs, very intimate McCartney gigs in the space of I guess seventy two hours. Um, so yeah, it was. Unbe- I mean, it took, and we were even invited. We could have. He played the Cavern on the the following day, um, which we were invited to attend. But I think we were both just so completely uh, overwhelmed by everything that had happened in the the previous few days. We were like, no, I think we're happy with what we've <laughs> yeah we've had a lovely experienced we've had yeah like they say on quiz shows yeah we're not going to gamble for the star prize we've had a lovely day we'll just take what we've what we've won we'll take the money um and yet so it was just yeah mind-blowing week so yeah in terms of favorite Beatles experiences but those are those are the it's the, the magic week isn't it but but we did get to see as, as I said we saw we got glimpses of Paul we both sort of met him fleetingly in the in the past when we've been at Lipper like so I graduated from from Lipper and met him when he graduated I was hanging around there one day with um, a friend of mine who was a student there and um, I met him in a corridor just a fleeting handshake you know um, and we saw the first the first ever Lipper graduation um, which was literally about a, about two months after Linda died um, we we attended because we were students there at the time and and but it was thought that Paul wouldn't be there and at the very last second, everyone was sat in the, the auditorium and, and he just came in through a side door and took a seat a couple of rows in front of us. So that was our first ever glimpse of Paul in the flesh and we were both like open-mouthed. Um, and yet we saw uh, um, George Martin did a, a, a Q&A there a couple of years after that, which we got to go and watch, um, which was which was great, you know. So of yeah, course, we, we did a few- bonus episode with Giles not too long back as well. We did, yeah. We're talking about the Let It Be um, remix box set and stuff. That was lovely. Um, so yeah, over the years we've had a few nice little um, sort of encounters, if you like, <laughs> with Beatles and and Beatles related people. Now, do you think there's any plans for Giles to remix the Beatles earlier albums and release those in the next couple of years? 
I mean, you would think they would have something up their sleeve for for the sixtieth anniversaries. I mean, it's it's it'll be sixtieth anniversary of Please Please Me and with the Beatles next year, won't it? So, I imagine they won't let that go by without some sort of um, release. I, I don't know if it would be the the all singing, all dancing box set um, that we've had for Sergeant Pepper and the White Album stuff. Because I just don't think there's the volume of of outtakes and alternate material there to, to really justify um a huge box set type thing but who knows um but i'm sure there'll, there'll be there'll be something i'm sure they may be remix those early um albums um maybe they got something in store for for revolver and, and things like that but who knows they keep the cards close to the chest don't they those apple folks <laughs> so who are your favorite beatles well, I think I think we've you may we've guessed. already hinted at it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're Paul guys. Yeah. yeah, it's it's always. I mean, as I said at the top of the the show, you know, from a young age, I gravitated towards his his material before I even knew about how the the writing worked in the band and how it was different people singing and and all that. You know, I just thought of Beatles as this one homogenous blob. You know, I didn't think of but as, as time went on and. I was like, oh, right. Oh, that was one of my favorite songs when I was younger. Oh, yeah, I love that one too. I started to realize a lot of my favorite songs were, were Paul's songs. There was just something about his style and his sound that um, that just spoke to me, I, I suppose. And it's 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 carried on that way. I mean, I love I love them all, um, worship them all, but um, <laughs> not literally. <laughs> um, but uh, I've, I haven't got an altar or anything. Um, but... Yeah, that Paul's just, I don't know, he's just, some people you just click with, don't you know? It, Paul has this thing that he says about his band that he, he's had with him now for like 20 years. You know, I remember him in an interview saying, uh, I just like the noise they make, you know? <laughs> and and I just, that's how I think of Paul, really. I, I just like the noise he makes. Whatever he does, I, I just, uh, I'm into it, you know? I mean, I'm not, I'm not completely uh, uh, sort of blinded by adoration. You know, I, there's the stuff... There's some stuff I like better than other stuff um, in terms of a solo material and even his, his Beatles songs. But um, but generally speaking, it's, it's his stuff that speaks to me the most. And so I'm probably speaking to you, speaking for you as well. Yeah, yeah, there's not much to add. I appreciate all of them for different reasons, I think. But yeah, Paul is the one that connects most closely with my interests and enthusiasms, I guess. Yeah, and I think he's the, he's the biggest... I mean, it's almost becoming a bit of a cliche to say, it, but he's he's almost as big a Beatles fan as as Beatles fans. He's the one who seems to get it um, the the most. You know, I mean, maybe obviously John. You know, it was cut off. In, in you know, from you know, we never got to experience John looking back. You know, forty, fifty years on, um, he might have, have you know being less dismissive of some some aspects of the Beatles, you know, as he grew old. And George, too. You know, George was quite resentful of certain aspects of the band, I think. But maybe had he been able to grow older and, you know, he might have, he might have looked upon certain things more more fondly and, and appreciated what they did more. Um, but I think Paul, he just... Um, I don't know, he always seemed to have more of an attachment to the whole thing. Like, the, the fact that... You know, he still records at Abbey Road so much, and um, you know, and he he kept his relations with with George Martin and Jeff Emmerich. He, he seemed to really 
feel a, a strong bond with those people from that time and the and the you know on Abbey Road and um you know he still keeps the the Mellotron from Abbey Road and the lights that they used to use <laughs> to the moody lighting that they you know these red bulbs that they had in the in you know he's got all that stuff he he, he holds on to he, he appreciates the value of it all I think maybe more than the other Beatles did or do um I don't know that's just the impression I get anyway. Does their music hold up against contemporary music? Like we're seeing this resurgence in their popularity. Is that due to like nostalgia or like a big budget they have now? Or do people still hold their music near and dear? I mean, I'd, I'd say it holds up and, and still has a really important place in the lives of millions of people. You know, and I don't think that's just nostalgia or marketing or anything, really. I mean, some of the work is quite specific to the time in which it was made, of course, um, and it'd be hard for it not to be, but there's so much in there that relates directly to the human experience, I would say. You know, you can be moved by the more heartfelt songs, their sense of humour. Um, even if you look outside the music, the sort of innovations in terms of sound and all of that stuff, it's such an appealing package. And, you know, if if it's about communication, then they had such a strong antenna for communicating with people. And I feel like the all these years after they stopped making music, those signals are still strong, you know? They're still bouncing off our eardrums, I guess, and, and resonating with us. So, yeah, it feels like it feels like uh, it's not going away anytime soon. I mean, human beings love major accomplishments, don't they? It's aspirational, and it represents the best of what we're capable of as people, and that's, like, what the Beatles did, you know? It's a contribution on, on the highest level, as far as I'm concerned. You know, people say, oh, you know, they changed the world and whatever, but they have immeasurably improved the lives of millions of people for decades since they even Mm -hmm. stopped making music. So, yeah, in that sense, I'd say it's going to be around for a long time. Yeah. Amen, brother. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your favorite Beatles albums? I'd have to say the best of the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what do you say yeah I mean it changes all the time but maybe um, today I'll say the White Album just because I remember when I first got into that how overwhelming it felt the, the scale of the ambition of it even though I know it's kind of all over the place and a bit messy like it, it wasn't enough to have back in the USSR and while my guitar gently weeps, they had Martha, my dear, and Obla D and Blackbird and Dear Prudence. And I mean, that's just like, what? What? You know, who else can, I mean, for, you know, it's obscene really, isn't it? You know, a lot of artists would make their entire careers on one of those songs. So yeah, I, I remember just being overwhelmed by that record. So that's my pick for today anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, that's at the moment it's probably joint white album for you know as I just said the sheer scope uh, the range of styles and, and sounds and maybe rubber soul I'd put joint top at the at the moment just because that felt like quite a, a transitional album for them they 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 started to make that step from from you know being a, I guess a pop band to something else that the, the 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 songwriting took a kind of leap up in in maturity and there've been glimmers of that with help on stuff like yesterday and things like that um 
but uh, they just seem to take a leap up in terms of the songwriting and the arranging and the invention and incorporating exotic instruments like the sitar and, and things like that. Um, and and just, you know, just the strength of this, the material on it. There's a couple of, there's a couple of lightweights, um, but to have an album where you can afford to bury in my life on, <laughs> you know, deep on side two, I think says it all about, about that album. I mean, I like every song, but there are, there are a couple that you think, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe I would have left that one off, but, um, but yeah, it's just, um, I think it's, 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 it's like that album's leading the way to what's coming next with, with Revolver, you know, and George Harrison said he felt like they were, you know, they were like companion albums. I'm not so sure that's the case. I think Revolver's a little bit more of a eclectic record. I think Rubber Soul's very much of a piece. And that's another reason I like it. It's all the songs pretty much belong together. You know, whereas when once you get onto Revolver and, and beyond, it, it all get, it gets quite varied, which is great. And that's what's so good about those albums in a way. But I do like an album that sounds like it's, all the songs belong together. It's a cohesive whole, you know. Yeah, when George said that Rubber Soul and Revolver were companion albums, uh, that has to be like the only time I ever disagreed with a Beatle. Yeah. I mean, they're so different. Like at the time when he said that, he probably didn't even remember what those two records even sounded like. <laughs> he was doing a lot of acid around <laughs> 566. So yeah, in his mind, maybe he felt like they were just recorded back to back. Right. Which wasn't far off. The rate that they recorded in those days, you know, it was like two albums a year, wasn't it? And, yeah. a, and, a, and a tour in between. and um, It's crazy. I mean, that's just, again, that's just what's so remarkable about them. They were producing songs of such quality so consistently and and with a, with a touring schedule like they had to deal with as well in the days when traveling was, was no picnic, you know? <laughs> um, all that flying in like the mid-60s. Um, but yeah, uh yeah, so yeah, Rubber Soul and the White Album for me, joint joint favourites. So guys, what have you been up to recently? Are you involved in any projects? Any new episodes coming out? We've got a lot on the slate, haven't we, Bri? We've been sort of researching and recording quite a few episodes recently. Um, so I can look at my desktop and tell you that there are one, two, three, four, five, six... There's about eight episodes in the queue at the moment, so we've got... They're, they're recorded, aren't they? Yeah, Yeah, actually recorded, so there's plenty to be getting on with, um, and I know... And I'm, then we've got... Yeah, there's a handful of uh, interviews booked for the next uh, month or so as well. Yeah. So that's that's ticking over quite, so yeah, quite we're busy. nicely. We're busy with the podcast. Yeah. And we've got some sessions booked in August for uh, finishing a bunch of songs that we've been writing together as well. So we're quite excited about that. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure pretty much everybody who listens to this podcast listens to your podcast as well. But for those who don't, where can they find your podcast and your work? Uh, well, they can stream it at um, sodajaker.com forward slash podcast. Um, or they can find it on any any podcast platform worth a damn. Um, Spotify, uh, Apple, um, where else I... Yeah, it's on all of them, Acast, Stitcher, you know, anywhere you might want to listen to podcasts, you can probably find it. Yeah, and we're on um, we're on all the socials under Soda Jaker as well, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, um, if you want to follow uh, follow us on there too, although that's that tends to be more um, terrible puns <laughs> um, than anything else. But uh, Care to see but, it, yeah. Brian. Yeah, but we do share the episodes on there too. 
now and again. All right. Well, I got one final question for you guys. What will you do when the bubble bursts? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. It was great having you guys on. No, thanks for having us and thanks for your questions and stuff. It was great. I enjoyed it. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, we'll talk about the Beatles uh, all day long, quite happily. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Thank you to Simon and Brian for coming on the show. If you have not heard their interview with Paul McCartney, I highly recommend checking it out. The link to that interview will be in the podcast description. If you like the show, please remember to rate and subscribe if you're new. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Beatles Earth, and I will see you next week. Here, there.